We're in a study of Paul's letter to the Colossians. If you have a Bible and you'd like to turn with me, we're going to Colossians chapter 3. I'll pick up reading at verse 1, but we'll be considering specifically today verses 8 through 15. This matter of putting off and putting on and being renewed in life in Christ. Colossians 3, picking up for context in verse 1. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not things on the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members, which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, him, created him where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, But Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which you were also called in one body and be thankful. Well, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, how much we do need to be renewed in Christ and in that life that he has so graciously given to us. Oh, lead us in the way as we set our mind again on things above where Christ is. May we from him draw life and strength even This very day, our Father, we pray that we might grow in him, in whom we pray. Amen. Some trees don't lose their leaves in the winter, as I pointed out to you last week, and as I've brought in an illustration for you children to see, these uh, leaves uh, have been stuck on the branch all winter, which I think is really amazing. I mean, all the fierce winds that we have here don't blow them off. The, The ice, the sleet... Uh, freezing rain won't knock them off. It's amazing. I don't think I'd be able to make something that sticks quite this great in all kinds of weather. Uh, These old leaves are really tenacious. They hold on. Do you know the only thing that gets these old leaves off? You know, don't you? It's new life. When the new green leaves start taking their place, they push out the old dead ones. This process of renewal 
doesn't only happen in natural things, it also happens in spiritual things as well. It happens in our lives. Many Christians also work hard to pull, pull off sin, to get rid of sin, and that must be done with effort. People tell themselves no. They try to avoid temptation. All of that is good and right and must be done. A great deal of self-control involves saying no. But today, I'm going to teach you the secret to success in self-control, which is learning to say yes. That is, learning to say yes to that living and growing in the new life that we have been given, in which there is power to renew us, to push out the old, and to make the new to flourish. To explain, a harsh husband and father is less likely to overcome his harshness by telling himself again and again how wrong he is and how he must stop. No, rather he must begin actively practicing Christian affection, gentleness, patience, interestedness in his wife and children. And the beauty of that new love given to them will bring such joy even to his heart that it will warm and he will learn to do more and more easily what he for a long time sought simply by saying no. A woman who can't get past her critical tongue will not succeed merely by telling herself to keep her mouth shut. She has not yet touched the heart. No, she must practice the uh, spirit and speech of kindness, of encouragement, of forgiveness, compassion, humility. And she will find that when she does, the power of godliness and the goodness of building up other people will far outstrip any joy she ever had in her sharp tongue. Old habits are very tenacious. They are not easily put away. They must be told no. They must be put off. But there is great power in saying yes, in, in putting on new life, and in the beauty of new growth and grace. And that's what we're going to be learning today as Paul describes the Christian life in these terms of uh, putting off sin, yes, but putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. Dying to self, yes, but living to God. And isn't life to be our emphasis? Isn't that what God is doing in us? From the passage today, I'd like to consider three things with you. The power, the practice, and the principle. The power, the practice, and the principle of this new life and renewing in Christ. First, the power. The power. We have been made new in Christ. And this is the power, as we are reminded here in verse 9, that we have put off the old man. That is to say, uh, that uh, former life of ours to which we are now dead. And in verse 10, we have put on the new man. Now, if you've been with us for the last few months, you realize this is not new information at all. Paul is simply summarizing and applying what he's been saying, well, since the first half of his letter, for example, chapter 2, verse 12, that you, Christians, were buried with Christ in baptism, in which you were then raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. 
or chapter 3, verse 3, we read earlier. You died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So, this is by way of review. Some people think of religion as man's search for God. But in fact, the, in the Bible, we are reminded that man does not search for God, as he should anyway. God searches for man. Man may be hiding from him, but God finds him and awakens him and draws him and brings him back to himself. This is in the Bible then um, called uh, new life, new birth. In fact, the Bible uses the most dramatic language to describe the change that God makes, that God has made in you. That you are, we read earlier, a new creation, given new birth, life from the dead, this God-given spiritual life with a new heart, with new nature, with new loves, new thoughts, new convictions, new aspirations, new longings, new powers, new principles. Friend, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, this is the heart of what it's all about. Salvation is not just about one day being saved before the judgment seat of God when he judges the world. Jesus says, look, you have to be born again. He, he explains, flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. You have to be born again. The most important need that you have today is life, spiritual life, by which God renews and recreates us, enlightening our eyes, transforming our minds, creating longings, and then fulfilling those longings in us. This is, I say, the greatest need that we have. So, People today in America spend thousands of dollars every year on things for the outer man, for clothes, beauty treatments, even some of you education, whatever you think will make a positive change. But the greatest and most wonderful change is that which we read about here, the one that God makes forever and from the inside out. Now, I'm sad to say that there are many people in churches today that have never heard about this new birth. Some churches will preach good works, social change, um, morality, reform, all, I suppose, fine in their place, but they neglect the one thing that will most help people and the problems of this world, new men and women. And this is what we are reminded of here. Christ is all and is in all. Christian, this is the power that we need to exercise, not just on our first day of new life, but every day for growth. This branch that I brought in will never get rid of these old leaves. I mean, this branch right here will never get rid of its leaves. These are now stuck and eventually are going to be burnt. Why is it? Why, why will these leaves never leave it? Because the branch is now dead. There is nothing that's going to be able to make a change. There is no power of new life coming. I can, with some effort, tear off the old leaves by force, but I will never, ever be able to make this branch blossom and flourish, I guess unless I graft it into a living tree. If I were to graft it back in where there is power to live, power to grow, then a great change would happen. And that is what we are talking about today. Not you just <coughs> yanking things off in your life, but the power of new life that puts off and puts on. 
some years ago, a, uh, there was a Unitarian uh, Church radio ad that concluded by saying this, come as you are, we don't want to change you. Well, Jesus was the furthest thing from a Unitarian. In him, there is the power that we need for a beautiful, fruitful, flourishing new life. And now let's consider that. From the passage, this will be my longest point to you, an exposition here, the practice, the practice. We read in this passage about the practice. First, putting off the old. He writes in verse 8 that we ourselves are to put off all these anger, wrath, blasphemy, excuse me, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Don't lie to each other since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man. You say, wait a minute, hold, hold on here. If we already have put off the old man, in fact, if we have put on the new man, why is he turning around then to tell us to put off and put on? Didn't he say we've already put on the new man? Well, friends, think of it this way. Can an adult become a child again? You say, no way, that's impossible. Well, can an adult act like a child? Oh yes, we see that every day. Uh, adults who are now grown need to put off childish ways and learn to act their age. And so it is that we are being told here to put off those things which are in fact now past and to put on the things of Christ who's come. So out with the old, in with the new. That's the idea of the passage here. Last time we read about how Paul tells us to put off certain sexual sins. We come today to less interesting sins, perhaps, to some of us, uh, the sins of anger, the sins of the tongue. Uh, I say uh, these may be more acceptable, even in Christian circles, but they are no less deadly, perhaps more deadly. Why do I say that? Because sexual sins can certainly ruin a soul, ruin a marriage, ruin a family, but they will very seldom ruin a whole church. They will seldom make you lose your job. They will seldom take away your closest friendships. But sins of the tongue and sins of anger can do all this and more. So let's still pay careful attention. Once again, uh, we find that Paul has a list of five, as he seems to be working in this passage, in this, in this uh, list of five. We read first of anger and then wrath which are very, very similar. I'm not sure that there is a difference. The second word may be stronger in, than the first in the original, but just like in English, they're used as practically synonyms. Someone will say, well, hold, hold on. Doesn't God have wrath? Don't we read in Mark 3 about Jesus being angry? Yes, indeed. There is a righteous anger over sin and the devastating effects of sin. And God is perfect in that anger but you and I are not. The Bible therefore warns that man's anger does not bring about the righteousness of God. So there is a righteous anger, but be careful. Or as the old Scottish hymn writer, George Matheson said, there are times when I do well to be angry, but I have mistaken those times. That is, it's very easy for us, in fact, to justify what is sinful anger and then claim that it's righteous even legitimately righteous anger is tainted in us by sinful anger. So, he says, put these off. Wrath, anger, third word is malice. Malice, 
uh, a word that refers to premeditating evil. It's often used in legal co context today. Premeditating, that is plotting, planning some way to make people's life miserable. Uh, or we say having it in for someone, right? If you're thinking evil thoughts about what you're going to do to that person, that's malice. The next word can mean speaking evil falsehoods about God, as I have here, blasphemy. Or it can mean speaking evil falsehoods about people, which then many of you have translated as slander. Same word can be, if it's about God, blasphemy. If it's about men, slander. I think the second is clearly in context here, since this is talking about our relationships to one another, speaking against someone by tearing down their reputation, saying things to make them look bad and yourself to look good. But uh, both we can apply here. The fifth word is filthy language, I have it. Um, I think it's becoming chic among uh, certain, especially uh, younger Christians today, to use bad language. Some people think it's hip, um, but this and all abusive speech, as some of you also have it translated, is what we are told to put off. So here's this list of five, and then he adds one more, verse 9, and do not lie to one another, and so forth. Uh, Christians with our mouths have to be committed to truth. And I think we're all finding out today, aren't we, how important uh, truth is, how precious it is and how hard it is to find, how people are increasingly sacrificing truth for other interests. So much of what we hear in the news is spin. So much of what we are being told at school even is false. So much of our political speak is just manifestly a lie, which everyone knows. But Christians should find, if they are careful of the truth, that they are increasingly stand out in this society as people that are very different. And the context here is in our relationships with one another, that we should be especially careful among ourselves to put off lying. This is the negative side of things, to put off. But now, the positive, which you'll see here, gets the greater emphasis as we are not only told to get rid of certain things, but now to replace them with new life, new attitudes, new words to each other. This is the better half of the deal. In fact, that uh, wise pastor of a previous age, Robert Murray McShane, put it this way, Christ's work is not done in the soul when he has brought it to pardon, when he's washed it with his own blood. Oh no, the better half of salvation remains. The better half of salvation? Yeah, becoming like Christ. Things that will make us happy and holy and fruitful. Uh, do you feel that way? I hope you do. That as, as great as God's pardon is, now the transformation of our life is the better half of salvation. So verse 12, Therefore, as the elect of God, the chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on, tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, these five, that he adds one, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against the other, even as Christ forgave you, so you must also do. But above all these things, put on love. That's the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Okay, pick up some of these other things next week. But Paul begins with, again, this list of five to set against the previous five. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, 
patience some of you have. These are all the attitudes of a Christian heart. In other words, before you even begin to worry about getting your words or your actions right, get your heart right. A Christian is to have a whole new set of affections from the inside out, kindness, tenderheartedness, forgiveness, love. And he does go on to speak about our words, which are very powerful things, which can tear down or build up. Uh, people who harm others with their tongues are not just called to keep quiet, keep it to yourself, rather, to gain mastery over the tongue. A person must, from the heart, learn to be a loving encourager, a grace giver, someone who is known for building up others by what they say. So, as we consider this very letter, the loving, encouraging, truthful words that Paul has written, what we find here, we are to learn to do for others, as Christ has done for us. Paul goes on to add uh, patience and forgiveness and overall love, which always gets pride of place, and all of these virtues are in fact a form of love, even especially here, forgiveness. Uh, this forgiveness, I think, is not just thrown in randomly, particularly important at this point to the church in Colossae. There's a, there's a, there's a falling out that's happened. Um, Paul, with this letter to the Colossians, is sending another letter to a man named Philemon. He's uh, sending this letter to Philemon with a man named Onesimus, who, in fact, had stolen from his master, Philemon, and then run away. Where, so happens, he met Paul and became a Christian. Onesimus has now become a Christian, but, but not content. Paul then wants Philemon to receive him back, he writes, quote, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but now much more so to you. Receive him as you would receive me. So this is a very practical call to forgive. It's hard enough to forgive, but to reconcile as brethren, that's very difficult indeed. It needs a great deal of love to forgive in this way. Uh, forgiveness is, in fact, love overcoming sin. Love that survives sin is higher, deeper, more beautiful than it ever was before. There is a greater love to be practiced in the Christian life than any others that you will find in this world. This kind of love can only rest on one foundation, which Paul mentions here, the very love and work for the Son of God in our lives. It's from Him that we learn to forgive so humbly and faithfully. From Him that we find the motivation to forgive. And that makes us want to imitate it. So Paul emphasizes this power for forgiveness in verse 13. Even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Christ has forgiven our many sins, our constant and repeated sins, our thoughtless sins that we have so willingly and easily committed against His majesty. He remembers them no more. 
But how do we forgive like that? Just the same way that he forgave us. Paul told us in the last chapter, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made you alive with him forgiving all your sins. You say, this is very hard. Well, the Bible is never sentimental about Christian love. Love is often pain. Putting on love over all these things means sometimes deep sacrifice. Putting on love, true love, true Christ-like love, must be pain in a world of sin. In fact, it's the law in this world that one who loves most as a Christian will usually suffer the most because Christian love does not fail. It must be faithful as Christ's love was. It must endure. It must surmount the sins of others as his love did for us. So here is this very brief overview of the Christian life, the putting off of these attitudes and these sharp words and the lies that so easily easily proceed from our mouth. And we are rather to put on these graces, tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven, and over all these things, love. Here's the masterful passage from C.S. Lewis. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, your heart will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. We shall draw nearer to God, not by trying to avoid the sufferings inherent in all loves, but by accepting them and offering them to the Lord, throwing away all defensive armor. If our hearts need to be broken, and if he chooses this as the way in which they should break, then so be it. All right, so a brief overview of the passage, this practice of putting off and putting on all these particularly uh, evil intentions of our heart and words from our mouth are to be replaced with the contrary virtues. Mortification, putting to death, is contrasted with vivification, our new life in Christ. Those are the old words. Mortification, putting to death. Vivification, living new lives in Christ. That's the practice. But now let's finish with the principle. The principle, the third point. This Christian life uh, that Paul describes again and again has this word, therefore, therefore. It it describes the life of somebody to whom such great love has been shown, for whom such a great sacrifice has been offered, and to whom such great promises have been made, a life 
that is like none other, a life in communion with Christ and an imitation of his own. I, I quoted Dietrich Bonhoeffer last week. I'll say it again. He writes, being a Christian is less about cautiously avoiding sin than about courageously and actively doing God's will. And many Christians are very unbalanced at this point. Spending much more energy and effort at saying no than they ever do saying yes to Christ. This is the cause of much ongoing struggle with sin, where there should be greater joy in victory. What are you struggling with? You're struggling with some temptation. I appreciate your struggle, which typically is a struggle to say no. What have you replaced your sin with? It's good to make a strong commitment to put off certain sins, but too many Christians simply do not make a similar commitment to put on righteousness. The truest way to kill sinful lust, as we said last week, is for the married to cultivate that mutual uh, lo love and desire for one's husband or wife, to enjoy the beauty and fire that God intends for the married life. The most effective way to kill covetousness is to learn fulfillment and pleasure in the practice of generosity. The most effective way of removing anger from your heart and speech is to crowd it out with the enthusiastic practice of grace, love, and forgiveness. The best way to force sins out of your life is to crowd them out, push them out with behaviors that are the opposite. This is the principle that we read everywhere in the scriptures. It's good to have a strong commitment to put off certain sins, but you know, it's hard. It's, it's hard. I had this actually in the back of my car on the way over, and I realized later, oh man, there's a bunch of sodas in there. It's gonna roll, they're gonna roll over. And they did roll over, it's just amazing. They, they didn't, it didn't touch it. It takes a good amount of effort, right? Until the new life comes in, pushed out with ease. Many Christians similarly forget to put on righteousness, to cultivate the grace that stands opposite to what they are seeking to put to death, and therefore they fail. And nature abhors a vacuum. Remember Jesus told this uh, parable about a house that uh, is uh, swept clean, the demon put out, swept, swept clean, but then left empty. And then seven demons more evil come in, and the last state of that man is worse than the first. He's, he's saying, nature abhors a vacuum. We must fill that void. Most of the victory that we have in the Christian life, most of our victory in self-control is not a matter of saying no, but of saying yes. That's the principle I want to stress today. This is where Christian parents need to reevaluate the nurture that is in their homes, perhaps rebalance their priorities. Many parents are very zealous to remove from their homes 
the evil influences that can leave their children astray. Good. But there is little thought about what then should fill the attention, the hearts, the minds, the lives of the children instead. What should inspire and elevate and lift them up where Christ is. I mean, it's good to make a commitment that your children won't be carnally minded, but then parents don't spend five minutes of family worship or meditation on the glorious things of God to be spiritually minded, and nature abhors a vacuum. I hope you can see this is not the biblical balance at all. It's not just a matter of keeping our minds from dwelling on the things of the earth, the things of the flesh, as Paul puts it, instead filling our minds with the things of the spirit is his emphasis. If you were raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Set your minds on things above, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ. So you are not to worry merely about those activities, parents, that you never do, you are also to worry about those things that you always do. Not worry about just what you take out, but to worry about what you are bringing in to cultivate the green, fresh, powerful new life in Christ. Um, we all, Christians, need to put on, put forth the green leaves to push out the old. The point of our new life is not just what we're not doing. Uh, that gets to be a a very ugly kind of Christian life. It's not attractive when it's just a matter of no, no, no. The point of our new life in Christ is what we are doing, how we are being renewed through our knowledge of God in Christ. Frankly, your sins are so well suited to your fallen desires that the only way that you will ever have victory over them such powerful loves is to have them dislodged from your heart by a greater, stronger, more tenacious love that will come into your heart and drive those other loves out. And that is what we are given in Christ. Um, I put on the back of your bulletin today this uh, thought to contemplate later. Calvin, at the beginning of his Institutes, writes this, until men recognize that they owe everything to God, that they are nourished by his fatherly care, that he's the author of their every good, that they should seek nothing beyond him, they will never yield him willing service. No, unless they establish their complete happiness in him, they will never give themselves truly and sincerely to him. Indeed, no one gives himself freely and willingly to God's service, Unless, having tasted his fatherly love, he's drawn to love and worship him in return. Here's the power. Here's the practice. Here's the principle. In conclusion, it is a far greater thing to be made Christ-like than to be forgiven. And this is why God has saved you, or what he will save you for if you are not a Christian, he saves us to make our lives joyful, beautiful, fruitful in Christ. He saves us to make our lives a source of goodness, blessing, and help to others. He saves us to demonstrate his own holiness, righteousness, and love in our lives. And we need to accentuate the positive. Know that old song? to accentuate the positive. You need to say yes to Christ.
Some of you who have nothing but dead leaves, no hope without God in the world. You need to say yes to Christ today. You will find what I'm talking about by experience, a whole new life, a whole new heart and experience that pushes out the old, a new affection that transforms all those old affections so that you will lose nothing but gain everything in Jesus. From time to time, I put a little quote by Samuel Rutherford in the bulletin that I just love uh, that gives us the practice of this idea. With this, I'll close. Rutherford writes, as a child can't hold two apples in his little hand, but one puts the other out of its place, so neither can we be masters and lords of two loves. But blessed are we if we could make ourselves masters of that invaluable treasure, the love of Christ, or rather, allow ourselves to be mastered and subdued to Christ's love. So as Christ were our, our, our all things, and all other things are nothings, and the refuse of our delights, may it be. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you once again confessing that we do owe everything to you, that we are nourished by your fatherly care, that you are the author of our every good. Oh, may we from the heart seek this willing service, this practice in which there is power. We would seek again happiness in you, that we might give ourselves more truly, more fully, more sincerely to you. Give us a taste again of such fatherly love. Draw us again up to heaven where Christ is. We would seek those things which are above where that new life is already drawing us, calling us onward. And pray that in these things that we might advance from strength to strength, we ask it for Jesus' sake.